Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger's Studios. Today on the show, I am joined with Savan Hong, an author who wrote books for kids under the age of seven, all on autism, ADHD, dyslexia, because of the fact that there were no books for those of that age that they can relate to. She's an amazing woman. This was an amazing chat and interview. So I hope you guys stay tuned and listen to the very end because you'll learn a lot of things. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to Inside the Asperger Studio. Today, I am joined with Savan Hong, who is the author of Happy Fun Times. Welcome to the show, Savan. Hi, thanks for having me, Reed. Not a problem. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get going. Sure. Um, I am neurodivergent. I have um, autism. Um, I'm sorry. I have ADHD and um, I have two neurodivergent kids. I have a son with Asperger's um, who's very, very proud of it. And um, I have another son with ADHD. And um, and I became an author and illustrator of children's books for kids with neurodiversity so that they could see themselves in the pages of stories so that when they looked at books, they could say, oh, if I wear headphones in a classroom or if I need a fidget toy or if I need a schedule taped to my desk, that's totally normal and cool. So then I am guessing to answer the next question is what inspired you to write the books? You look to your sons and they were your inspiration. All of my stories, um, I have three out so far, are all true stories that happened to my children. And when my kids were younger and I was looking for books to be able to share with them, I couldn't find a single book out there that had an illustration of a child wearing headphones, not one. I couldn't find a book that showed kids with fidget toys or kids who struggled um, with schedule changes. They didn't exist. and and. As a parent, you want to be able to show your children that they're okay, that what they're experiencing isn't weird or strange, but that other people feel that way too and have the same situations. And so I set out to write these books for other parents um, and teachers so that nobody else would have to go through what my kids did, which was why do I have to wear headphones and nobody else is wearing headphones and I'm embarrassed about who I am. All right. So now your son with autism, does he view his autism like as his superpower? Um, absolutely. Um, obviously, there are days where it's hard. Right. And he struggles mm -hmm. and like he's 10 and like all 10 year olds, you want to be exactly like everybody else. You know, the, the same skin color, the same hair color, the same everything. But 90% of the time, he thinks it's a really great gift um, because we have raised him since he was diagnosed at two, that this is an unbelievable gift he has. And we talk about different people in history um, with autism and all the great things that they can do. Now, we don't sugarcoat it. There are parts of it that are hard, and he knows that. But I don't think he would change who he is. If I could give him a magic pill to make it go away, he wouldn't want to take it. And um, and when my younger son was diagnosed with ADHD, he told me that he didn't want to tell anybody about it because mm. he didn't want to brag. That's how my kids feel about their year diversity. They think it's really cool. They think it's a gift. Um, and they talk to their friends about it and they're open about it. That's an amazing thing, actually, the deal with i mean as with your kids at a young age to be proud of it because a lot of kids their age are embarrassed of it because it makes them different your kids look at it the whole other way they're like i'm proud of it i just don't want to brag about it to others so, so they don't feel bad 
I mean, that's that's some good parenting right there. <laughs> Thank you. I think the way I look at them, the gifts that I see that they have, if I don't teach them that those are gifts, there's no way anybody else in society is going to look at them as gifts, right? So Mm -hmm. as a parent, it's my job to make them proud of who they are. So then they walk into the world, the world looks at them and they're like, oh, okay, this is something that people should be proud of. You know, my son loves that he's really good at math. And and he jokes, he's like, the pretty girl in class is gonna cheat off of my, you know, (laughs) math page because I'm so good at math and that's a good thing, right? You know, like, how do you turn these incredible strengths into things that can be cool? Again, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. trying to navigate friendships and trying to navigate social circles can be really challenging. But I tell him all the time, those things are challenging for lots of kids, right? And lots of kids want to be just like everybody else. But we have to focus on the incredible gifts that you have and not focus on the things that you don't have. Focus on what's great about you, what's magical about you, what's so special about you. Now, what kind of lessons do you teach in your books? My books are all about perseverance, right? They deal, they're, they're targeted for kids about four to seven years old. So young kids, um, when they, they may not fully understand what's going on, why they are different from other kids and why change is hard. And it, they're structured like social stories that you get mm-hmm. in special education where they talk through all the specific fears that a child may have and then give them specific steps on how to overcome them. My first book was is called Benny J and the Horrible Halloween. And it was about how in kindergarten, my son didn't want to go to the Halloween parade at school. And Halloween is supposed to be this thing that every single kid loves. And it's supposed to be so much fun. And I couldn't understand why I didn't want to go. And then eventually he was able to communicate and tell me why he didn't want to go to the Halloween parade. It was going to be loud. The schedule Mm -hmm. changed. The costumes freaked him out. Like, what if he wasn't going to be able to recognize people and his friends? And he gave me a long list of all the reasons why he didn't want to go. And then the following year, we put in place things to help him, um, to show him that the costumes were kind of like choice time where kids got to dress up and he would still be able to recognize his friends. And we gave him the schedule ahead of time. And he was able to incorporate headphones into his costume so that the noise wouldn't be so loud and um, teaching him about belly breathing. And all these steps are in the book. And at the end, he loved it. And so in first grade, he went to the Halloween parade and now he loves Halloween. But it's it, it really is the very fears that he was feeling and the actual steps that he took to overcome it himself. I think it's really important that these children um, know that they can do it. They have it in themselves to succeed. And we may have to have accommodations in school or other things to help them along the way, but they've got what it takes. Yeah, I mean, that's important teaching kids at a young age that, hey, you there are steps you can do to get yourself beyond this obstacle. That's and I right. Thank you. I mean, your books are great. I mean, helping your kids out, I mean, having them as your inspiration must be something you're proud of. I'm proud of it. And they help me along the way. Um, nothing goes in my books without checking with them because that's what makes it authentic and real. Um, they help me pick out the names of the characters oh, and, wow. and, and I read everything to them to make sure they think it's funny and relatable and true. Um, so they are part of that creative process with me because it's not my story to tell. It's really their stories to tell. And I'm just the tool in which they can use to tell it. But um, my kids are still in elementary school and they think that their mom being an author is a pretty cool thing to be. So if I can make them proud with what I do, then that's the icing on the cake. Now, did you, I'm taking you self-published? 
I do. And I was very deliberate about it. I had some offers to not be self-published, but, um, and to go through a traditional publishing house, but I decided to self-publish because I didn't want to lose the authenticity of the books. The illustrations are deliberately very simple because as you and I know, a lot of picture books have these beautiful illustrations, but neurodiverse kids will get distracted by the illustration and lose focus on the story. Mm. So I really wanted the books to be written for neurodiverse kids in a way that neurodiverse kids can consume them, not in the way that a neurotypical publisher could consume them. The font is dyslexic friendly, so it looks really simple, but I Mm -hmm. wanted it to be something that children with dyslexia could follow along with, right? Um, The illustrations do show kids wearing headphones and fidget toys and all of the things that our kids experience every day. And I didn't want a publisher to come in and take that away. And then all of my books also are done in audiobook because as we know, I know the only way I read books is on an audiobook because I get too distracted in in a traditional reading method. And so I wanted them to be available to every single kind of learner. Um, And so the authenticity and the control to me was more important than going through a traditional publishing house. And maybe one day publishers will understand that, that the way children's books are written need to change for neurodiverse kids. But right now, I don't think that exists. And so for me, that was important. Now, for someone who has ADHD, I'm guessing you've had, did you have problems writing your book with distractions and everything else? So I hyper-focus on them. I will sit down and like in three days, they're done kind of thing, right? Like, um, because I'm so passionate about them. My biggest challenge is editing them and proofreading them. And so I have other people do that for me because I will never catch. For me, spelling is the hardest thing in the world. And even with spell check, it'll be spelled the right way, but it'll be the wrong word because I've missed what it's supposed to be. Um, So I need a lot of support on that front. Um, And and that's where I get the the help. But I will just sit there and and do nothing for three days, but work on the books and then poof, I have a book. Um, But so that's how that's how it manifests with me. Now, how hard was uh, how hard was illustrating for yourself? Um, I had never I'm not a trained artist, but I've spent a lot of my life doodling in class. And so um, found the art part to be very therapeutic and fun. Um, and I didn't know if I could do it, but I'm always have this mindset that if it can be done, I'll find a way to do it. And and so I did. And um, and I really enjoy it and find it to be a great part of the creative process for me. And again, if I'm not illustrating these books because I'm an illustrator with a capital I, I'm illustrating them because I want to make them the right kind of illustration. So there's such a purpose behind what I'm doing that it makes that part of it really worthwhile for me. You know, I want to thank you for writing these books because, like you said when before we started recording, there are no real books for younger children to explain to help them get through their autism. There's all these technical books of technical terms and written by doctors and professionals, but nothing simplistic to say, hey, you're not alone out there. There are other kids dealing with the same thing you do. There are one or two that I have seen, but none of them that have the illustrations that are designed for our kids. And, um, and I get so many emails from parents where their child will look at the picture and say, Oh my gosh, that's just like me. That's me. And point to it and be so excited that they can finally see somebody like them in a book, right? Like to me, that makes it all worth it. All the hard work and everything 
that's what I'm doing it for. So that these kids will realize that, that other people are just like them What they're experiencing happens to lots of other kids. And frankly, for the neurotypical parents, when they get questions about why somebody in the classroom wearing headphones, they can sit down with their kids and talk them through this mm-hmm. is the experience. This is the difference. This is why they're wearing headphones and that's okay. Right? We can't just educate the neurodiverse population. It's really important to educate the neurotypical kids about the differences too. So that there wouldn't be so many, so much bullying. And there isn't, you know, why is this kid, you know, why do they get to chew gum or sit in a funny seat or have to take breaks or get upset when the noise is loud? know that they see this as something that's okay and normal and just part of our differences. Now, as a parent, what do you think the educational systems can do to help improve on learning for to learn about those who are neurodivergent? So when we were kids, either you weren't diagnosed at all or you were separated into some separate classroom and mm-hmm. not integrated with the general population at all. Today, many neurodiverse kids are integrated into a classroom with other kids, which I think is incredibly important um, because our kids need to see other kids and they need to see us. And this is part of society. And the younger we do that, the better. But I do think that there needs to be a larger recognition about learning differences, right? And it, it, it may not be that a child is diagnosed with something at a young age, but this notion that we don't all learn the same way and that the education system needs to respond to that diversity in learning I think is really, really important. We see this even, you know, uh, with our 2E kids, right? Like my son is 2E and the school district doesn't do enough for children like that. It's not just, we have this mindset that special education kids, you know, need all this extra support, but oftentimes they just need a lot more challenge, right? Children who hyper-focus on certain ideas, like, let's build on that, right? It shouldn't be shut down. If, you know, if your kid is really interested in space, find a way to capitalize on what your child is good at, capitalize on their strengths, because that's how you're going to build their self-confidence. That's how you're going to teach them to be able to survive in the world outside of school. Um, So really understanding, um, how to deal with learning differences, I think is something we're still working on. And of course, the resources to do that don't exist today. Um, And there's a huge gap between those kids who have parents who can pay for all of these supports and those kids whose parents cannot or who don't even have the access to get diagnosed. Um, It's interesting that children in in wealthy communities fight or their parents fight to get their kids diagnosed because they know of all the services these wealthy communities can provide. Mm -hmm. And then the children in low income communities, most of these parents don't show up to an IEP meeting because they just don't know, or they can't leave work or whatever. And their Mm -hmm. kids are not getting the resources they need and the gap grows and grows and grows. And there's an education gap that exists in all communities, but I think it's even greater amongst the neurodiverse population. I mean, I can vouch for that. I mean, growing up with me, there was no such thing as autism in the, in the whole, in when you get diagnosed and all that, it was, Oh, he's learning disabled. So there was no medicine. There was no ADHD either. It's, oh, let's put them on this medicine and hopefully it'll make them better. It wasn't until later in my life, my, my, my mother's cousins, both who were, one's a lawyer and one's a psychiatrist and my family doctor, had told my mother, he is 
he is showing signs of high functioning autism. You should look into that. And it wasn't until later in the year that finally Social Security was accepting autism or Asperger's as being disabled. So it was, I mean, we applied for Social Security two different times and I got denied because they said I was competent enough to hold a job. It wasn't until later in life that we tried again, but with a disability lawyer and they said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get denied both times. That third time you get denied, you're going to appeal and you want a court case. We did that. We got the court case. We went with a lawyer in front and in front of the judge, he and they had a woman from a vocational center. And she went through all these jobs and my mom is in there with me and you're like, he can't work there because he's, he deals with people, you deal with people, you deal with people. And he's got problems knowing when not to say something. And at the end, they thanked me. And then we won that case. I got my social security from that. But you were lucky to be able to have the resources and the know-how to be able to do that. And it, it shouldn't be luck. No, right? it shouldn't. It should. There should be, no matter how it's put, if you are diagnosed and you have that paper that shows you're diagnosed, it should be, oh, okay, we are going to work with you to get you your Social Security. Yep. It shouldn't be a fight. And right. that's, I think, why, like you said, a lot of people fall through the cracks because parents either don't have the time to fight the case or they give up. And I'm assuming, and I'm assuming you fought for your kids to get them the support they need. So it's interesting. My, when I knew something was different about my oldest son when he was a year old. Um, And probably if he had been my second born, I would have known it at three months. Um, And I took him to doctor after doctor and I kept hearing he's just gifted. And I was like, I know that sounds very nice. And lots of parents would love to hear that, but that's not what's going on. Like in my heart of hearts, I knew that that's not what was going on. Um, And he had these very spiky savant skills Mm. and um, no, no, he's just gifted. But finally I was able to get him the right diagnosis that I knew he had all along and was in a position where I could quit my job and do everything I could to support him. Most people are not in that position. And then I live in a school district where they treat my son as a gift. They love having him. They, they, they do everything they in their power to support him. And, and when I go to people, BT meetings, I have to be like, you know what? I don't think he needs a para anymore. I think he can handle this. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. Let's see what happens. They're so willing to give him everything that he needs. But this is like, I won the education lottery with him, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is not the experience that most parents have. That is not the experience that most kids have. No, I mean, with most kids, I mean, with me, I wasn't gifted. I mean, I stink at math. And that could be the fact that I have multiple disabilities. I mean, along with ADHD, I mean, like they say, if you don't, repeat what you learn from school, you'll forget it. I went for my master's degree and I forgot everything because I never used it. But that's the thing. We have this notion that that every gifted kid with Asperger's is great at math. And yeah. that's not true, right? No. Like the, you, you have gifts, right? They may not be math. You may not be a computer whiz, but that doesn't mean you don't have gifts. We have to capitalize on the gifts you have and not think about all these stereotypes that, that, you know, Hollywood projects for Mm -hmm. people who are neurodiverse, right? We're not all that person. I mean, that's the hard thing. I mean, Hollywood's made it so much so that, oh, anyone who's got Asperger's, you're gifted. You know math, you're special. 
And then there's the whole opposite side of things. When people see us, it's the whole imposter syndrome when we're out in public. Oh, you don't have autism. You, you act perfectly normal. But yet they don't see that opposite side. Right. I have right. talked. I, yeah, go on. No, no, please. See, this is my ADHD interrupting. I have to no. stop myself. <laughs> no, go on. And I'll finish up. No, finish up. Please read. I had talked with a success coach who has for um, autism, for autistic kids and ADHD and all that. And she's got two of her kids who are on the, who are on the spectrum and they were at summer camp. And she told me the story where one, one, her son got approached by another kid and says, Hey, you don't, you're not acting like you're on the spectrum. And they just started harassing him. And his older sister came up and told him to leave. And he said, listen, you don't need to feel bad. They don't know the other half of the story. They don't know you take your medicine. They don't see what's going on at back home. They don't see everything else. And it's, it's the same, no matter where you are, it's just because we act normal outside our home doesn't mean we don't have anything. That's why it's called the invisible disability. People don't believe it unless they see something. Right. That's absolutely right. And, and I think the more we can get society, Hollywood, whatever, to stop depicting it as this one size, this smart, nerdy white boy, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's what we keep seeing. Um, the easier it will be. But right now, that's the one idea that neurotypical people think we all are, right? That's the model. The pro- I mean, problem with society is they only believe what they see. And that's half the battle is getting them to see the other side. Yep. And I'm sure... With you, it's a struggle with your kids and even with yourself. People only see one side of you when you're out in public and then they don't perceive the other half. Right. They don't know the imposter syndrome that runs through my brain every single day when somebody buys my books. Right. And that I fear Mm -hmm. like, what if it's what am I doing? Like, how could I possibly have imagined that I could be an author? Right. Or or. um the idea that for me, um, you know, talking to strangers is hard. I'm a huge introvert. And the idea that I can sit there and they're like, oh, you're on all these podcasts and you talk to all these people and you do all this stuff. And they don't know the the fear I have every time before I start, because I worry that my ADHD is going to make me completely off focus for whatever question somebody's going to ask me. And I'm going to sound like I have no idea what I'm saying, right? Like these things are real. They don't know it because they're not asking me and I'm not sharing it the way I'm sharing it with you. But if people knew, right, then maybe Mm -hmm. they would understand a little more because you and I make it look easy, right? It's easy to listen to the podcast and hear you talk and see how eloquent you sound and what a strong advocate you are for neurodiversity. But it's not easy, really. No, it's not. If they knew the troubles we faced, I mean, I talk, I've told this to people all the time. It's, they don't know the struggle I deal with, with fighting with monitoring everything I say when I'm out with family or in public with family or with friends, it gets to the point where it gets tiring and something slips. And at that point, they don't, whoever I'm with doesn't realize I'm constantly listening to the thoughts in my head to the point where it gets over, it just gets overdone and I get tired and something slips and I just get looked at like, how dare you say something like that? And I get yelled at and then I like crawl back into my little defensive mode into a shell and I don't say things. And people wonder why I go quiet after that. It's because I'm afraid I'm going to get yelled at again. I need 
take time away from people because it exhausts me mm-hmm. to talk to people that I don't really know very well. Right. Like it empties everything out of me. Um, and I recognize that I need that time to, to kind of replenish myself. And I see that with my children and I give them that time too. And I talk about to them how it's hard for me and this is how I'm feeling so that they can see that it's not just them, right? That, that many of us have this experience and this is how we, we need to give ourselves that time. Otherwise we Mm -hmm. do say things we shouldn't say or feel, you know, it, it, it is a different awareness of social interaction. It's a different awareness of when you're outside the home. And we always talk about masking and, and whatnot. And, and, and there's a reality where some of that has to happen, but there's also a reality where we have to focus on our self-care and what's best for us as people and our mental, you know, caring about our mental health more than we have to care about what the rest of the world thinks. I mean, yeah, I mean, the one is the one big thing I have against, I advocate against with ADHD and even AD, with even ASD is masking because people doesn't, people don't realize when we go out in public, I don't mask. I've never masked, but those who do, what people don't realize is it drains you. And this is why your kids or anyone else's kids or even you come home, you're exhausted and you don't want to be bothered is because you're, you've been pretending to be something you're not. And that's why I'm against it. I mean, why should we pretend we are something we're not in the workplace, in society? It should be the other way around. They need to accept who we are for what we are and not make us pretend to be something else. Well, and I think even the notion that we talk about masking, I don't think neurotypical people even realize that that exists until we start talking about it, until we make them aware that that is a thing, because how else would they know, yeah. right? It, 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 at some level, it's on to us to explain it so that they recognize that it's a thing that's happening. Um, but yes, I hear your point completely. I mean, now, do your kids give you ideas for your books? Well, they are my books, right? (laughs) They, they, the situation. So my second book was about, it's called George J and the Miserable Monday. And it was about how every Sunday night, um, my son would not want to go to school the next day because he worried that everything was going to change, right? The change is hard. And the weekend makes you start worrying about, well, is my seat going to change? Are the kids going to still be my friends? Like all of these anxieties and fears that happen about Monday. Um, And so it's the true story of, about him facing Monday and, and, and what he needed to do to get through Monday. Um, And look, it's very poignant now, given how much school anxiety there is COVID exacerbates that condition even more. Um, But it's, it's about that. Um, My third book is called Emily D and the fearful first day. And it's about the first day of school. And as we know, the first day of school is hard for all kids, but Mm -hmm. neurodiverse kids, it's particularly hard. There is so much change and so much unknown. Um, And it's about how I asked for my kids to be able to go into school before all the other kids. And they, they do, they show up an hour before everybody else and they get to walk into their classroom and meet their teacher and find their seat and get completely acclimated before everybody else shows up. And while it doesn't completely alleviate the first day of school fears, it makes it much easier to be able to transition into the start of a school year. And so I'm hoping that other parents see this and say, oh, I can ask for this too, right? This is something I can advocate for my <laughs> kids to have. Um, and 
And it, it, it does make a really big difference mm-hmm. and it makes my kids feel super special to get that one-on-one time with their teacher to get to know them before all the other kids show up. I wish I, my parents knew about that when I was growing up. I mean, it's hard. I mean, we, like I said, we didn't know I had autism back then or ADHD or any of that. I mean, all they knew is I was different. I was put in a learning disabled, a special disability class through high school and grammar school. And it was a good thing we knew I was disabled because when it came to college, we knew that I, I mean, one of the stories I can tell you is I went, we have a thing here called DOORS, Department of Rehab. You probably have something like that up there in Connecticut. And I had one counselor that literally told me that my, my face and my mother's that you will, I will never make a four-year college. I'll never make it through because of my disability. After that meeting, I got up, I, as we walked outside, I turned to my mom and I said, I was disgusted. I got home and I wrote her, I wrote a letter to the department and saying, I was very upset with the comment made about that. I would like a new counselor and they gave me one. Good. And what I wound up doing is I went four years for an online university and got my degree. And then four years later, I went away to college and got my master's degree. Good for you. And, and I even traveled across Europe on my own. I mean, I want people out there to know. I mean, this is one of the things I do is part of my blog is I want people to know just because you have a disability doesn't mean you are stuck at home doing nothing. You could do whatever your heart desires. I could not agree more. I remember when my oldest son um, was diagnosed at two. The therapist looked at me and she's like, he will never be on a sports team. Don't even think about that. Like that will never happen. Like, just, and you know what? He's on a travel basketball team this year. And Good in my heart, I want to be like, I want to send her that picture. And be like, you are so wrong, right? Like, who are you to tell me that some two-year-old will never play on a sports team? How is that? What kind of limiting mindset is that? If I was the parent to believe that and to to every time my kid showed an interest to be like, well, that's never going to happen. That's going to be too hard for you. Like, no way. How do you and your kids deal with sensory overload? So... Um, we have learned to wear hats and beanies <laughs> and, um, and take breaks, um, and have quiet spaces and they advocate for themselves. If they need a break, they raise their hand and they say, I need a break. Um, or if they, they sit in the part of the classroom, if they want, that's going to be quieter, or if they need to kind of nuzzle up in the bookshelves, they get to do that because if that's how they're going to learn, that's how they're going to learn. My son has a standing desk at school, which lets him kind of move around freely and not feel so trapped in a chair. And, and they have learned to ask for what they need and, 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 and I will get it for them. Right. But they're also in a school that listens because the most important thing is to get our children to know that they have a right to every single thing that any other neurotypical kid has. Right. And so if my kid needs to wear a hat while he's playing basketball, so it's not so loud, so be it. Right. I remember he, one of my sons was in a music class and it was too loud and he kept putting his hoodie on and this music teacher is older and didn't really understand. And she kept asking him to take it off. And we had to have a conversation with her that said, no, if you want this child in this class and it's your job to have this child in this class and educate him, he needs to wear a hoodie and he needs to be able to put it over his head when things get too loud. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. That's okay. 
we need more school systems like yours. I mean, you look around and you listen to the stories, the horror stories of teachers that don't understand students like your children or anyone else that was neurodivergent. And it's either the, the teacher goes one step beyond and winds up hitting the kid and they wind up getting fired because they don't understand or the kid winds up causing a scene by standing up and screaming and having a meltdown. There needs to be something put in place to where these teachers before even they before they even get their teaching degree, they also have to have a class on how to deal with the neurodivergent. Well, and it's more than that. It's more than how to deal with the neurodivergent. It's how to get those neurodivergent kids to excel, how to Mm -hmm. capitalize on those gifts. We owe it to society to say, this isn't just a group of people who are going to be locked in their houses all the time. We can help the world be a better place. The world just needs to allow us to do it. And And how do we teach these kids to learn in the way that they can learn? And how do we have job interviews that don't Mm -hmm. require somebody to have eye contact? Right. Mm -hmm. And and what kind of work environment these open. Oh, it used to drive me crazy. These open cubicles where everything would distract you. I'm like, no, I need to be in a hole in order to be able to function. Right. Like, how do we design a work environment that gets you gets the way our world is so that we can be productive members of society. That's, that's the good thing for everybody. I mean, when I went for my master's, I literally advocated for myself. I mean, the one thing my mom told me is you make sure you choose a school that's got the right disability department for you. And what I did is I reached out to the disability department and think, Hey, do you, what do you do? What do you offer? And I reached out to one and I said, listen, here is my conditions. What can you offer? And they, they go, okay, we need your letter to prove that you have a disability. And once we get that letter, we can sit down. And then what happened was once we got things set, this is like one of the best disability departments ever he called my disability advisor called me once a week from England to make to have to go through things with me until the day I flew up to England to make sure I was ready. And that's, that's what they amazing. But that that's, was. that's that should not be an exception. That should be the norm. It should be the norm. I mean, it blew my parents' mind. One, I didn't even know he was going to do this. And then all of a sudden, my parents are like, hey, Reed, you got a call at your disability advisor from England. And he called me and he's like, I'm going to call you once a week until you're ready to fly out here to England to settle in. And then we're going to continue meeting through your year while you're working on your master's. And then he literally set me up with a psychotherapist for about six weeks to help me settle in, someone to talk to, a wellness advisor to help me with getting, learning about the food and am I doing all right? I never used my academic advisor because I never needed it really. But my disability advisor and my well-being advisor were the two main advisors that helped me get through everything. But see, you didn't need the academic advisor. Right. If the other stuff is in place, we can capitalize on the strengths. Yes. I mean, one of the things I think one of my strengths is I love learning. So when when I'm in a class that I enjoy, that holds my attention, I focus. And I sat there and I focused for my class. There was only one class I just found a little boring and it was hard because the work was tough. I kind of like fluctuated in and out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they kind of like switched um, professors in the middle of the class because he was teaching another part. And the problem was he sounded like his accent made him sound like he was underwater. It oh. sounds like like the teacher from Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah, so add that along with 
me dealing with sinus issues and being clogged up in the weather and everything, I just said, I'm not going to class. I'll just, whatever work needs to be done, I'll do it. It wound up being the one class I failed. Hey, that and my dissertation were the two things I failed, but I still wound up with a, um, a, um, a, um, what do you call it? Not a master's degree, but a um, certificate. Good. A postgraduate and, certificate. And the experience. You walked away with that experience. Yes. And that's the other thing I would love for kids who are neurodivergent to be a, if you can go away to school, you will learn eventually how to live on your own. Yep. See, one of the things I would love to do, and if I can get the funding one day to do it, is I want to create a place for those who are on the spectrum, both ADHD and ASD, where if you need to go somewhere to get away, if you're feeling overwhelmed or you, you can come here and we'll have therapists, we'll have like phone charging stations, we'll have sensory inclusion rooms. You can choose like if you want to stay for the weekend, if you're older, you can choose if you want to stay longer, but it's a place, a safe, it's going to be a safe place for the neurodivergent. I love that idea. So whoever's listening out there, you should think about funding Reed. (laughs) I mean, it's a great idea because we need a place, a safe place. Say you're coming from school and then you're overwhelmed. You want a place in between you can go before you hit home to unwind. Yep. So you're, you're not burnt out when you hit home and your wait, your parents are waiting on you to unwind. You can go there, unwind, relax, come home be and still be productive at home sounds perfect you i bet you you see life for your kids eyes a lot don't you i think every good parent tries to right there are times i fail miserably and then there are times that i do a good job at it um but the times that i fail miserably i try to own that with them so that they see that you know, we all make mistakes and, and we have to pick ourselves back up and try again. Yeah. I totally agree. Because Mm. neurodiversity does not look the same in all of us. Right. And the way it impacts me is different than the way it impacts my kids. And, 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 There are times where I think about the world through the way it impacts me, which is not the same as the way it impacts them. And I have to constantly um, step back and try to figure out, you know, how is it impacting them so that I can parent them in the way they need parenting instead of parenting them in the way I parent, which is different. Now, how did your kids deal with online schooling so they're different and um, my older son loved it because he had no social pressures right he could sit there he could do his schoolwork he didn't have to worry about anything else and he loved it and my youngest son said it is the worst experience of his life and he will never forgive me for making him do it So, um, and, and I think he holds a grudge, so I'm not sure he will ever forgive me, but so I, and in our district, I think we saw a lot of that. We saw some kids who really found it to be much easier because the sensory stresses, the social stresses, those were all gone and, and, and it made life easier. Now, did they work on social skills during that time? No, not at all. And so that's the hardest part, part. but life was easier. And then you have a bunch of kids who were just didn't do anything. And so um, I found that I was an elementary school teacher for a while and that was okay. Um, But I think the whole world doesn't yet know the impacts that all of this have had on so many kids and it will be only a matter of time 
before we start seeing those things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, with the with what's going on in the world, I mean, what I don't think I think the school systems what they're not realizing is by doing this they're taking away the social part of this whole thing and what i don't think i'm pretty sure i know but i'm not sure what this what they don't realize is the social is the bigger part of the whole thing education yeah it's important but socializing is if you were to put it in a pie graph it would almost be 80 50 50 percent uh, education 80 percent socialization we need yeah. socialization to get through the world to get through I think, life i think our school district has said something to the effect that they will not shut down schools that it will be the last thing to get shut down i, I, I believe there was an article yesterday in the new york times that talked about um how important in-person learning was for kids and that mm-hmm. um that of the that really you should not close the schools no matter what unless there was no other option and and i know that our educators feel that way and i'm glad because having them home it, it, i heard somebody once say to me one year home for a kid is like 10 years at home for an adult right like if you were stuck at home for 10 years, imagine what that would do to you. Well, that's what we did for a kid. Right. And so in terms of their development, and so the bar better be pretty high before we try to do that to them again. I mean, I mean, to share a story with you, my mother told me our foot doctor, he had to hire a school tutor and it was a fortune because both him and his wife work. So they had to find hire somebody to send to send their kids to to teach their kids because they couldn't afford either of them couldn't afford to take off work to watch. I mean, and then the other side of it, though, people don't realize you if your kids have to stay home, one parent has to stay home. That's and right. That, and that becomes you're no longer becoming a mother you're becoming a mother you're becoming a monitor you're becoming a teacher and then you got to do your own work and then you got to deal with the distraction of your kid and make sure he's sitting still in this class especially with someone with like your kids who have adhd or even asd it's hard to sit still when For I was sure. in high, yeah when when i was in high school I remember my mother telling me she'd get a phone call and they'd say, Reed couldn't sit still in any class except for one class. And it was my social science class, my general science class, because I love the topic. Right. But every other class, I couldn't sit still. I mean, try doing that online. Look, I had bouncy seats for my kids, right? And, mm-hmm. and, um, and my youngest son, I would say, show up for morning meeting and then I will do the rest of the day with you because there was no way he was sitting in front of a computer. I mean, any seven-year-old is not going to sit in front of a computer all day long, right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, with the because when you're at that age, your attention span is shorter than it is now and any little thing will distract them. That's right. That's right. A dog barking, a bird chirping outside. Uh, the phone ringing or just the fact that it's miserable to sit in front of a zoom screen all day. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't realize what it's doing for their eyesight too. I mean, cause you're sitting there in front of a screen for what, four or five hours, eight yeah, hours a day. It's terrible. Your terrible. eyes will be killing you. But um, do you have any more plans to write more books? I'm working on a fourth book right now, and it's about the end of the school year because people always have this assumption that the end of the school year is this magically great, happy time for kids. Mm. But that's not true. There's so much anxiety that goes into place at the end of the school year because 
you don't know what the summer is going to hold. The summer has a totally different schedule. In fact, in many cases, the summer is unscheduled. So that's hard. You don't know what your class is going to be like next year. You're exhausted because you've done everything you can all year to hold it together that by the end of the year, you have nothing left. And so it's about a girl who's struggling with the end of the school year and what she does in order to make it more manageable. Um, Again, like it's one of those things like Halloween where parents think one thing and the reality and the experience that the kids are going through can be completely mm-hmm. different. I mean, pe- people don't realize for those of us who are neurodivergent, what is normal for one isn't for the other. That's right. I and mean, change is really, really hard. That's one of the biggest things for us is change. I mean, you go from one end to the other and something changes in the middle and it's like, what do I do? I guarantee you when COVID hit, it must have threw a monkey wrench into your kids' schedules and everything with online learning and dealing with friends. How did you handle it? I print out schedules all the time, right? Like, and, and, and I think it's really important, you know, for me, it's, we print out schedules. It's not just schedules of classes or activities. It's free time. It's homework time. Every minute is scheduled because Mm. that is how my family functions. It's how I function. And it makes things go smoothly when everybody knows their expectations and, and things get done. Otherwise nobody would eat, right? Like we would never get through a day. (laughs) Um, But, but having those set schedules makes a really big difference in my house and they're hanging up on the wall in the kitchen. And then sometimes they have to change and we have to be flexible and we talk about what that means. And, you know, this week is a perfect example because on Monday we didn't have school because the school system was trying to figure out how many teachers were out and how many bus drivers were out with COVID and what they needed to do to have a strong week. And then um, this morning we had an ice storm. So we had a snow day, right? Like things, as much as I schedule everything, it it, it never is going to be perfect, right? There are things. Oh. So we talked about, okay, we're going to need to be flexible in the month of January because there are a lot of unknowns. And what does that mean when, when we have, you know, an unknown and how is that going to impact our schedule? And if we talk about it in advance and my kids and I talk about it and they know that what's on the wall may not be what's going to actually happen, it helps. Yes. Right. It's not perfect. It's not easy, but it helps. And the more we talk about it and then they see, okay, the schedule has been adjusted and the schedule gets changed and goes back on the wall. And then they look at the schedule and then they're like, okay, now I have a schedule. I know what I'm doing. I'm good. Um, the schedule is a very big friend in our household. (laughs) Yeah. I have talked to many people who have ASD and ADHD and scheduling is so important. I got one friend who I've made, who is a huge ASD advocate on YouTube and he schedules everything from eating to gym time to relaxation to doing his show. He's like, he's like, my whole life is scheduled. But that's, to me, that's comfort, right? If, if it's not there, it doesn't happen. I drop yeah. the ball. I'm not uh, like those schedules are what help me be a functioning adult with a family and responsibilities. And like, I need that schedule. I love a good yeah. plan and I have to recognize that they change, but then I put together a new schedule. Right. And, 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 And it gets me through because time is so amorphous, right? And especially Mm -hmm. for kids, you can't hold time. You can't see time. You can't touch time. But if you create a schedule, you have now taken something that is invisible and made it visible and made it tangible. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the magic of a schedule. 
if you're like scheduling, I know the perfect app for you. Do your kids have phones or tablets? Not yet. They are too young. (laughs) Well, for you, at least for those, when they get older, there is a app I had sponsored called Timo, T-I-I-M-O. They're for anyone who has ADHD or ASD and they're a visual planning app. You create, it's free on the computer and then it's, you pay for it to sync to your phone or your, whatever you put it on. And you literally create a visual calendar for yourself. You can create routines with it and activities. I, I use it because I need to hold myself accountable for like my morning routine. Yeah. I mean, before I had this, I would get up and just be in my pajamas all day. I wouldn't get dressed. Now I get up, I shower, I brush my teeth, I get dressed. Before I never brushed my teeth every day. Now I'm doing it every day. I'm holding myself accountable for it because my phone reminds me, hey, it's time to do this. Yep. It makes all the difference. Scheduling is so important for those of us on the, who are neurodivergent. Even bullet journaling is important, is a big thing because we can sit there, write down our activities and keep track of our day and hold ourselves accountable for what we have going on, who we're talking to, what we're doing, and so on. That's right. That's right. I think it's one of the greatest tools. And and the younger you can teach kids the importance of it, the the better. So schedules show up in every single one of my books. Scheduling is so important because if you're not, if you don't hold yourself accountable for your day, your the days are gonna slip by and you're gonna forget things that you have to have done. Without a doubt. Anyways, it has been great talking with you, Savan. It's great getting to know you. You are a fab- fabulous person. Oh, I feel the same way about you, Reed. Anyways, everyone, that was Savan Hong, an author for Super Fun Time Books. I'll leave a link in the description down below, and I'll see you next time, everybody. Thank see you, you for having me. Bye. Bye.
We live on 